for listening to the only podcast dedicated to the business of pharmacy. Welcome to the Pharmacy Podcast Show. You can find all of our episodes at pharmacypodcast.com. Hi, I'm Dr. Philip Empey. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Pittsburgh School of Pharmacy, and you're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast. Hey there, pharmacy community. This is Todd Yuri, the host of the Pharmacy Podcast. Hey, we're returning to the subject of pharmacogenomics today. Um, promised uh, the listeners uh, six episodes on this topic, and I'm pretty excited about this. I'm on location today. I'm in the city of Pittsburgh today at the University of Pittsburgh School of Pharmacy. I'm going to let these guys introduce themselves. Hi, this is Dr. James Coons. I'm PharmD. I'm an associate professor at the University of Pittsburgh School of Pharmacy and also a clinical pharmacist special, uh, specializing in cardiology at UPNC Presbyterian Hospital. Hi, I'm Dr. Philip Empey. I'm a PharmD PhD at the University of Pittsburgh School of Pharmacy, assistant professor and also a pharmacist. Good afternoon, gentlemen. How are you? Good afternoon. Doing great. Happy to be here. So I found you guys through the Pennsylvania Pharmacists Association. Um, be doing a presentation there for one of their conferences, and I'm just fascinated by the science. As I've clarified and said before to my listeners, as well as to some of the um, uh, people that have been generous enough to give us some information. I'm not a clinician, so I'm looking at this from the outside in. So very much appreciate uh, you uh, being willing to answer some of our questions, and then. Really, today, I want to understand how does the pharmacist, how does the clinical pharmacist, how does the community, the long-term care pharmacist out there, the consultant pharmacist out there, how do they leverage pharmacogenomics? And I'm going to start with you, um, Philip. As a pharmacist today, leverage what is pharmacogenomics? So that's a great question. I think, number one, I want to say it's a, I think it's a tremendous opportunity for pharmacy and pharmacists in particular in our field. We're long recognized as, as therapy experts, particularly around medications. And I think there's a wealth of data and even more and more data uh, being released, both scientific and, and practice data. And I think there's a, there's a wealth of information out there for us to, to know what we all see in our current practices, and that's that sometimes the medications don't work for people. Uh, it, the estimates as high as 30 to 50% of drugs on the market actually don't work in people that are prescribed the first time, uh, either either failed efficacy or sometimes toxicity. And I think we can do a lot better at, at for patients, specifically, and for resources and costs uh, to try to get the right therapy the first time. Yeah, I like uh, some of the data that you've already brought to the table for um, a presentation that you're doing. Um, and just reading off one of your slides, it says the vast majority of drugs, more than 90%, only work in 30 or 50% of the people. And that's kind of an eye-opener to me. Um, what do you think, um, why, why, why has pharmacogenomics taken um, so long? And, and in my opinion, it's still, um, you know, there's a lot to be done for it to be embraced at the level that I think it, it, it could truly help um, thousands, if not millions of people. But What's the holdup? What do you think it is about pharmacogenomics that it isn't uh, completely embraced yet in in standard practice? Well, I think there's a I think there's a lot of barriers out there. Um, I think what sort of brought it to the forefront and perhaps why it's a, a current topic in for the podcast and, and for your listeners is um, you know really there's a, a rapid acceleration of technology that's made these test results available. It's also allowed us to conduct a lot more research and to understand how the results 
might impact uh, either drug levels or drug effects. Uh, but, but through that, we also understand there's barriers. You know, so the primary barriers is understanding where to deploy to make sure we get the best return on investment, um, how to train a workforce that perhaps didn't have it when they were in pharmacy school, um, and then to understand the reimbursements, understand um, whether this is being supported by third-party payers um, and whether uh, you know, government, things like the Medicare and Medicaid are supporting this type of testing, and, and they're looking for data as well. I think it's important to note that there's about 140 drugs right now where if you look at the FDA-approved package labeling, there's actually information in there about pharmacogenomics uh, that could say everything from a boxed warning that says you should not give this drug to a patient uh, or perhaps some recommendations on guidances, on, on dosing recommendations, all the way down to uh, perhaps just something that describes that there's a variability in outcome in a particular patient or, or in the pharmacology. The other thing that I think is exciting in looking at those number of drugs is some people have this bias that it's only in uh, specific fields like oncology. And if you look at those labels, it actually is pretty diverse. There's data in cardiovascular drugs, um, there's data in psychiatry, and there's a bunch of different um, opportunities to deploy it to, to clinicians that treat a wide number of patients in a variety of practice settings. So um, I'm a pharmacist, um, pretend. Um, I'm a community pharmacist. Um, I have patients that are obviously seniors. They're on obviously multiple medications. Uh, maybe one of them's on warfarin, for example. What's my role as the pharmacist um, to actively or proactively take a look at some of my patients' uh, medication review sheets and and then reach out to the physician? Uh, how do you see it happening in today's world? How do you see the role of the pharmacist um, embracing and utilizing the science of pharmacogenomics? It's a great question. I think it really depends on individual patients and individual uh, medication therapies that they're on. Uh, the data is not equivalent for drug to drug and situation to situation. I think pharmacists are very well positioned to understand all the different variables that determine whether a drug works. Uh, so the application of pharmacogenomics, I think, is focused around where we have the strongest data. And I think there is certainly some leading use cases. Uh, for example, at our own institution, we're getting ready to implement uh, testing for a antiplatelet medication, uh, clopidogrel or Plavix. Uh, other institutions have implemented the same uh, medication, as well as uh, others. You mentioned warfarin. There are some um, institutions that are testing, sort of an opt-in model for warfarin. Uh, and I think that data is, exists or a patient enters the uh, pharmacy where uh, they either bring their own data or if there's an opportunity to test, we as a profession have to be able to integrate that data with everything else we know about the patient uh, and to enforce things and, and help patients with things like adherence and, and diet and everything else we know that impacts drugs, but also use the data that we have. And if pharmacogenomic data is going to be more and more available, which I personally believe it will be because the costs are to get that done is plummeting. We have to be able to know how to, how to use that data in our practice. Dr. Coons, how do you assess the clinical importance of this? So as, you know, as Phil had said, there, there's definitely a lot of variables to consider. Um, and, and that's actually what makes us as pharmacists perfectly positioned to really try to integrate that and, and determine things like, you know, is, is the medication in interest dependent upon a, a certain, you know, metabolic pathway? Is it a pro-drug? You know, is it active? Um, but certainly, you know, when you look at some of the, the examples that, um, 
uh, were referenced already, clopidic rail warfarin, we, we know already there's multiple factors that determine response and, and the gen genetics is really just a piece of that puzzle. So, you know, when you're evaluating everything from, you know, the, a person's risk of, of bleeding or thrombosis, you know, the age of the patient, um, their weight. Um, so there's a lot of factors that go into it. And I, I think genetics really can help us to be even more precise about what, what actually is the, um, the best therapy for a uh, particular patient. So um, my father um, is on a um, cholesterol medication and he knew that I was doing some uh, programs on pharmacogenomics. And he actually went to his uh, community pharmacist and actually asked for her to run this test. And she really wasn't sure where to start. But I mean, if uh, there, there's a factor there that information out there, the internet is a, is a wonderful and terrible place all in one. There's good information. There's bad information. We're podcast is a pharmacy podcast is partnered with RX Wiki, which we feel that uh, much better pharmacy oriented information and medical information. But how do you, how do you coach a pharmacist that's listening to this podcast? Uh, where do they get started? How would someone actually embrace the science at the levels that we're at without overstepping their role as the pharmacist, but consulting and collaborating with a physician to ensure that their patient is in fact metabolizing their medications based on the information that we have today. Uh, there are some great resources out there nowadays. I would specifically direct uh, any clinicians, especially pharmacists, to a, a group that's really been leading the implementation on the clinical side as well as the science, and that's the Clinical Pharmacogenomics Implementation Consortium. It's run of a group uh, that's been conducting research in this area that's funded uh, through NIH called uh, PharmGKB, which is the Pharmacogenomics Knowledge Base. And it's a public website on that pharmgkb.org website. There's uh, essentially all the data that's, that's been collected through research aggregated. And was specifically within that CPIC, or the that Implementation Consortium group, they've really uh, pulled together experts to create guidelines that teach clinicians at all levels to how to use the data, everything from how to uh, interpret a, a test report uh, to how to make decisions based on that data to what frequencies are in the population and really provide a guidance to folks that are trying to implement things in their practice. Because it, as you mentioned, it is challenging to try to integrate all the existing publications and then you can find on the internet all these different sources. And you know, we really direct clinicians specifically to find these guidelines. These are the leading edge sort of clinical recommendations from experts in the area and they're very well formatted, very easy to read. And you know, taking that along with the test results your patients have together really provide a framework uh, for, for a pharmacist to help make their recommendations or at least a great place to start. So let's talk about uh, digging down into the application of this. Um, I understand that the three uh, therapeutic classes that are um, is uh, cardiovascular medications, um, psychiatric medications, uh, pain management medications. And it seems like that's where all the um, NDCs that have been listed by the, um, by the FDA, uh, that's kind of the starting point for, uh, for myself when I'm asked by a pharmacist for more information. I direct them to the FDA site to actually read through uh, what medications have, in fact, been uh, so-called, quote-unquote, red flagged. But um, let's talk about application. Let's talk about the, uh, these therapeutic classes. So in my in my practice site, which is within uh, cardiology, you know I, I you know get to work with a lot of different healthcare professionals where we treat patients that 
you know, present with heart attacks, they get stents. And one of the, the leading use cases currently is with clopidogrel or Plavix. Um, and it's, it's one of, you know, several medications um, in that class of the P2Y12 inhibitors that um, are, are frequently used um, to decrease a person's risk of forming a clot within their stent, you know, after having had a heart attack. And, you know, we, we've known for a while now, um, at least based on what's in the, the FDA label for Plavix, that it is one of the medications that's dependent upon uh, a person's genotype. And that if that uh, data is available, that um, there is guidance in terms of, you know, how to manage that patient. So, um, you know, for me in, in my practice, even thinking about others out there that, that encounter these types of patients, I think there is a, a unique opportunity to um, better uh, evaluate and select, you know, an antiplatelet medication that the patient would um, respond to because we know that, you know, upwards of 30% of patients have an ina inadequate response to clopidogrel. What about, um, uh, let's say, pain management, for example? Um, I know, in fact, uh, pharmacists who have told me that, in fact, they're requesting these tests and giving the right data to the physician um, in order to kind of execute and get the test run. The, the physician is very appreciative of anything that can be uh, sent up. And one of the pain management um, physician, or I should say pharmacists that's oriented with a lot of pain management um, uh, patients told me that... Uh, that many of his patients, in fact, weren't absorbing specific medications that were dedicated to pain management. So what data or what highlights do you have specific to pain management? Yeah, so, I mean, the biggest example for pain management is a simple one. Many patients have taken codeine. Codeine is a, a prodrug, just like the previous example with, with Plavix, uh, but it needs to be activated by an enzyme that most of us have fully functioning in our, in our bodies. But, you know, we've known for a while that uh, there's a segment of the population that seems to have a, a poor response. And it turns out about 10% of Caucasians don't have the ability to activate or essentially convert codeine to an active metabolite. Those are your patients that, you know, perhaps in another setting and without having this type of data, you may label as non-responders. Or even worse, you may label them as as what do we call them? We, we call folks like this either drug seekers or, or patients that you know right. need more than others, and that's an unfortunate label in this situation because it's something that we could measure, measure constitutively and understand whether it's the best drug for the patient. So, codeine is the easiest example because there's it was a dear doctor label uh, letter that went out to all prescribers a number of years back. Um, it's in the package labeling surrounding those drugs in children currently. Um, and it's an easy implementation where testing for cytochrome P450 2D6 is available to be able to do that test and understand whether patients may either have too little activation or no activation or even too much activation, in which case we should be a little bit uh, more aware and be cognizant for side effects or perhaps choose a different drug. So my limited knowledge of, uh, uh, of the science of certain medications and I look at um, many of uh, some of my very close friends and a couple of my family members actually that um, have you know been taking certain medications and are wondering now that I'm bringing a lot of this up is are these medications working or not working? It's a it's an interesting science. I think that the future of leveraging pharmacogenomics in 
in, uh, in our daily practice with patients is obviously going to increase in its application and its leverage between the relationship between pharmacist and, and physician. Um, I'm excited. I want to see pharmacists lead this. Um, I'm extremely um, impressed that, uh, that the both of you are involved in the research and leverage of this from, a, from an educational perspective and, and helping pharmacy students actually uh, understand that this is a this is an entire subset of pharmacy. I mean, this is this is a huge opportunity for pharmacists to lead. Um, what about the testing per se? Um, what examples can you um, provide our listeners today as pharmacists with regards to kind of the whole um, cost, the FDA, uh, the sampling? Um, just give us an overview of uh, of the testing in in pharmacy. Yeah, the testing is. You've probably heard a lot about it on the news uh, lately yep. because I think the FDA has taken a lot uh, more aggressive stance lately because there is sort of an explosion of companies and of testing services out there. Uh, tests can either be FDA approved or run by an outside lab that has um, necessary um, approvals uh, to cannot conduct these individual tests. Um, now they can cost anywhere from you know as low as $100, maybe all the way up to in the thousands, and those tests are, are rapidly coming down in price. Uh, the regulatory and the reimbursement landscape is fairly variable as well. I think that's a barrier. I think we all have to work towards understanding that better. And as a uh, sort of as a profession, working towards uh, correct reimbursement where it's, uh, there's a return on investment. But because of its sort of being variable, there are pockets where there's great reimbursement and there's other areas where we still need to work towards it. And that uncertainty sort of slows us down. But I am excited, just like yours. I think there's more and more testing to be available. I think the quality of the testing is getting better and better because the FDA is helping with those guidances. Um, and I, and there isn't even opportunities for patients to go out and, you know, if they, as you mentioned before, seek testing on their own, uh, they can try to get that, that data themselves. And I think we feel strongly that it's, it's a strong role for our pharmacist and a healthcare professional in helping to work through what that might mean for patients. But the access to this testing is, is really what's getting more and more exciting. Uh, Philip, I really like what you had said before we started the uh, interview, and that was um, there's globs and globs of data out there. There's sometimes it's too much data, and there's uh, commercial organizations that sometimes will throw a bunch of data at a, at a pharmacist or a physician or both, and um, expect you to become um, you know the decipher of it all. And of course, the pharmacist you know needs to be the decipher at all. However, it needs to be. Uh, done in a way that is, um, I think, symbiotic to the relationship between patient, physician, and pharmacist. Obviously, uh, what how what, what advice do you give a, a, a pharmacist that really does want to? Let's pretend there's a pharmacist that either owns their own pharmacy, uh, they're a pharmacist consultant in a long-term care nursing home, and they know that they have patients that, in fact, are going to have issues with uh, metabolization of certain medications. What's your advice to those uh, pharmacists listening that? Um, kind of want to approach, whether that be their department, whether that be, um, you know, another association, uh, to kind of getting started, to test or not to test? Yeah. So I, I'm actually going to push back a little bit on that because I think the decision to test or not is almost the wrong question. I think it's, as a provider, we have to know how to use the data. I, I firmly believe that in the, you know, the coming years, whether it's a year or, or five or 10 years from now, I think that we'll all have this data. Mm -hmm. And I think as providers, I think we have to know how to, to make decisions using the data. So when we teach pharmacy students or providers, we teach them a very simple decision-making process that sort of starts with the science of 
you know, do you know um, whether this uh, this genetic variant has a role in the and how an enzyme functions, that little nuts and bolts science of it, all the way to is there reimbursement. And um, there's a series of questions that we, we put out there um, that helps make a decision. But I would really ask and suggest that the providers go straight to those guidelines. Uh, it's a great, I mean, there are three, four, five page articles. They're all freely available um, right at, at, I mentioned it, farmgkb.org. Uh, and you can download and familiarize, familiarize with those with the guidelines. Um, and become very knowledgeable in a short period of time. And then once test results come in, you understand the framework for applying those data. And if you happen to get information that is not on one of the guidelines, because perhaps it is a, a test that is more broad than is um, currently well supported, you'll begin to have a decision-making process using that stepwise approach to be able to help direct per other providers or patients to, to good quality information. And if it's not ready to use some of the data, because perhaps a little bit early, you'll at least have the framework for uh, collecting the outcomes and, and to know where to start. And I think uh, more and more often that data is available to at least help us start making these decisions. So Philip, share with our listeners uh, what's actually happening here at um, at UPMC and the, um, the uh, Pittsburgh School of Pharmacy with regards to research and what you're doing in the field of pharmacogenomics. Well, thank you. Actually, we've had a, quite a few major initiatives locally uh, the University of Pittsburgh and UPMC is really passionate about trying to make use of this, these types of data to really provide the best care for our patients. Uh, specifically, we've had the Institute of Personalized Medicine created here recently, which is really trying to drive these interventions uh, into practice to improve care uh, and then to collect the, the research data around that. And we have several initiatives, both in the clinical area uh, as well as in, specifically in the education uh, to, to, to really uh, get the message out there and try to improve care. Yeah, in fact, one of our, our first uh, clinical initiatives at UPMC Presbyterian uh, University Hospital is to really launch um, the clinical implementation of pharmacogenomics, uh, specifically within our um, cardiology population. So patients that come through a cath lab, get stents, uh, receive an antiplatelet medication, uh, we'll be genotyping those patients for CYP2-SNK-19 and then really uh, incorporating a process for the, the pharmacist to take take the lead on um, helping with the interpretation of that uh, genetic information in the context of other uh, clinical data available to the patient and then making interventions uh, directly with the medical team, including recommendations to potentially change therapy or, or to optimize therapy. Um, and then the other aspect of it is to uh, educate patients about what their genetic result means to them um, personally, with respect to the medication that they're on, why we, you know, uh, had selected that particular medication, then to reinforce aspects of um, adherence with the medication, as well as evaluate their long-term response. So that pilot will involve about 1,200 patients or so, and we'll be able to importantly collect outcome data to be able to say whether these interventions improve the care of patients, the cost of therapy, and the satisfaction for the care of those patients. And that's really important data to the profession. Uh, to the School of Pharmacy and to UPMC in general. But to get back to the education, that is really one of the largest barriers. You mentioned it before, is sort of everyone that's come through pharmacy school or uh, schools of medicine, it's really only been taught the last couple of years. Um, so it's been in our curricular standards for a while, but it's a hard subject to teach. And so we've been really uh, spearheading initiatives where we've been training uh, new pharmacy students that are leaving the School of Pharmacy with a really innovative program where we actually 
it's an optional thing, but if they want to undergo genomic testing themselves, they can. And they're given the opportunity of either using uh, public data that we provide them or their own data in exercises within the curriculum in order to learn what it is to be tested themselves, to learn the process, to learn how to use the data and make decisions. And we've collected data from this first pilot just last year when we did uh, provide it to one class of about 100 students and they absolutely loved it. We found that they learned better, they learned more. Um, and they're more comfortable in engaging the profession and, and patients and, and the science to make decisions. So well, we've already expanded that to a second semester this year, really expanding out to uh, other practitioners and out to the community to be able to really drive this educational process home and help folks out in the community make use of the data as we talked about previously. Well, I tell you what, I'm extremely impressed with um, UPMC and Pittsburgh School of Pharmacy's dedication to this. Um, and the program, as well as uh, the both of you, um, I thank you both for will being willing to be interviewed on the Pharmacy Podcast. Uh, we're dedicated to the business of pharmacy, but also uh, advocating and uh, cheerleaders for pharmacists in general. Um, I'm going to put a link to that website that you mentioned down in the information uh, below the Pharmacy Podcast. Uh, right, you'll see it uh, down below um, the actual recording with underneath the player. So you can click on that if you're listening uh, to get information that uh, Philip actually suggested. Um, but I just wanted to extend a, a thank you to both of you. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast. Uh, interest in pharmacogenomics if you do have any questions or you want to send something to the show please do so in our contact section or leave us an audio recording in the t- contact section we'll be sure to follow back up with you and we thank you for listening